0: We're in Matthew 9. This is right smack dab in the midst of a display of Jesus' power. And he has been powerful. He can calm a sea, and he can cast out demons. And we're going to see now at the beginning of chapter 9 that he is, as he has been, he is Lord of all creation. So we're going to see a healing take place and try to learn the best we can from it. So this is verse 1 of Matthew chapter 9. It says, And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, had given such authority to men. We've prayed often, but I suppose that's supposed to be our posture all the time, so let's pray just once more. God, would you help us? Help me. I'd love to be encouraging. I pray that we would not take these words as idle words or mere ink on a page. I ask that we would, by your Spirit, live into our confession. And the things we confess concerning Scripture is that it's living and it's active. So more than a mere academic exercise, give us living and active faith through your Word. We thank you for your love, your affection for us. You know us better than we know ourselves. So Holy Spirit do it, only you can. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. My guess is that you've watched an hour or a thousand of YouTube. Is that correct? Is that a fair assessment? Just a couple of hours here and there each afternoon for your whole life, maybe. So it's a popular thing, and there are more or less informative places to turn on places like YouTube. One who I could say with Pretty clear certainty that I feel like is informative, and I would say to a kid, for instance, or anyone that I met without caveat, that they could go to is a YouTuber by the name of Mark Rober. Maybe you've heard of Mark Rober. If you haven't heard of him, I'll tell you a little bit about him. Mark Rober is an engineer by trade. He worked specifically in aeronautical and in space engineering. So imagine introducing yourself as an engineer and then forgetting to say, oh, by the way, it's space engineering. He has Bonafides such as this. He was a part of a team that worked on the first rover to Mars. You know how when you were a little kid and you got a remote control car, but it was terrible, and the battery died in five minutes, and then the part fell out on the side of the street, never to be driven again? Well, imagine something so much beyond that, that do you know that right now, as a result of engineering and geniuses like Mark Rober, that we had not one, but now a second, much better and updated, remote control car on Mars. Can you believe that? So Mark Rober is the kind of guy who does that. He gave up that career, I think in large part, to help care for his son, who has some special needs. And in addition to that, desires to spread a love and a passion for engineering and science, and so he makes Crazy videos. One of his most viral, that's what the kids are saying these days, the most viral, the one that got the most reach, was about an ongoing battle that Mr. Rober had with squirrels in his yard. You see, it seems to have started one day where he put up a bird feeder, spending his own hard earned money to help to feed the birds that may come into the yard, only to realize after a couple days that the bird feeder was being ruthlessly emptied, emptied by thieving squirrels. And for a little while, frustrated by these squirrels, he began to fight them off. He made the stand for the bird feeder more difficult to climb. He moved it to the dead center of the yard. And over and over and over again, he lost the battle with squirrels until finally he turned his frustration with them into a kind of fascination about their dogged commitment to getting what they wanted. It ended up that he created a not American ninja course, more like an American squirrel ninja course in the backyard and would document the way that these squirrels would relentlessly seek after what was there for them. Day after day, sometimes falling on their face over and over again, they just continued. They were hardwired to get the thing that would satisfy them. And it's a fascinating example from nature about consistency and persistence and what it looks like when a kind of desperation to be satisfied with food gets worked out in real time. Now you may be saying to yourself... What in the world did we read in Matthew chapter 9 that would segue us into a squirrel ninja course lecture? Well, here's what it is. Matthew, as he often does, does not include all the details of this event. He glosses over in verse 2, he says, "...behold, some people," one of his favorite words, "...behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed." Now, that sounds absolutely or positively boring. Except we know from Mark's account and Luke's account as well, Mark and Luke both more descriptive in the way that they describe these things. We know that there is some background to how these people, some people brought this paralytic to Jesus. And what we're going to see in their description, we're going to read from from Luke here in just a second. We borrowed from Mark a few weeks back. We're going to borrow from Luke this time what we're going to see is that there's a demonstration of faith, that's what is going to be marked by Jesus, that leads to an understanding of the greatest need of humanity and the forgiveness of sins. What we realize is that the demonstration of these people bringing the paralytic is much less random, circumstantial happenstance and way more dogged squirrel. So you may know this story well, but I'm going to read starting in verse 18 of Luke chapter 5, and we're going to get some color. We're going to turn from black and white to color, from Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 18, about just how this paralytic was brought. It tells us there in Luke's account, "...and behold," there's the word again, "...some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus." But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. This is an amazing account. We find Jesus... Back in Capernaum, his sort of home base for ministry, he obeyed those who wanted him gone for killing all their pigs. He goes back across the Sea of Galilee. The crowds rush in again. And these friends, or men, we're not sure how they're related or connected, with a kind of dogged persistence, find a creative way to bring a paralytic man before him. Now, what I want to consider and talk about as we go from this account, all this color behind it, is this account back to Matthew chapter 9, is I want us to see a a small little picture of what it looks like to have faith. What does faith leading to life look like? Well, I think it has some parts, desperation, and then a big part, declaration. So I know those sound similar, just to help us remember. There's one aspect of this we're going to talk about, and that is a desperation for Jesus, followed up by what does our desperation need when it arises in our souls? We need declarations from or declarations of Jesus, and that's going to lead us to hope. That's what's going to lead us to new life. So this is pretty clear, especially what we just read in Luke chapter 5. But there's a sense in which faith is marked by desperation. There's something about the need that this paralytic man had and his friends saw in him that made them not stop. I want you to imagine being this paralyzed man. You'd spent most of your life unable to provide for yourself. You are a charity case, quite literally. You maybe have visited all who knew anything about medicine. And as far as you could tell, you ought to and perhaps have given up hope of ever walking again. Over the last number of months, there in your very hometown, in this region of Galilee, there have been whispers and ongoing ministry with crowds following of a teacher from of all places out in the boonies of Nazareth, who has come through and many people have said that he can heal. In fact, earlier Matthew recorded that all who were brought to him, their illnesses and sicknesses and diseases were taken from them. And then I want you to imagine being that person. Perhaps hope has sparked in you for the first time in years, and then you hear, he's gone. That healer got in a boat, went across Galilee, and as far as you know, has just been gone now forever. Perhaps that hope that had sprung into you has now been gone, and like the proverb says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. You had been faced again with the desperation of your condition. And then just as soon as you ride the drop of the roller coaster back down with dashed hopes. There's a buzz at the docks. A boat has returned. People are saying, the teacher is back. Jesus makes his way through a crowd into a home. And there is once again a mass of people rushing in. The only problem is you can't get to him because you can't move. So some loving folks come alongside and they lock in with the paralytic on a recognition of the desperation of his case and they go to find Jesus, but they are thwarted by the crowd. Now they have a decision to make. Could they say, well, we tried our best. This was one option. I don't know. I guess it's just not for our friend here. It's not going to happen. Perhaps when faced with difficulty or odds or a line, you'd say to yourself, I give up. My mom, who often listened to these things, so hi mom. My mom is notorious for never wanting to wait even 90 seconds at a restaurant. Is that you? So my mom's very excited. She loves to eat out. We go to a restaurant, but she'll turn around the corner. And if she even sniffs out one person having to wait, immediately she will say, oh, do you guys think we should go somewhere else? I don't know. I mean, this just looks like a hassle. I don't know if we should do that. I have been with my mom, where not once but twice she has done this, driven into a restaurant. It was busy. She said, let's go over there. We drive five minutes to a different restaurant. She saw someone on the line. Immediately, she said, "Eh, I don't know, looking a little tight in there. And we go somewhere else. Now, imagine the anti-mom. Imagine the anti-my mom. These folks, they go and they say, a crowd is a problem. But here's the thing. There's nowhere else to go. What's being demonstrated here, when I say desperation for Jesus, what seems to be demonstrated here is not only an understanding of someone's case. No one needed to remind the paralytic that he had troubles, that he had a need. But more than that, there was a desperation because Jesus was the only hope that the man had. And so he's teaching and there's a crowd rushed in and these friends say, I have an idea. Now, I want you to imagine that these four men were squirrel-like American Ninja Warrior people, and they were all able-bodied, and they said to one another, here's what we got to do. We just have to get up on the roof and make our way down through. That would be crazy enough, right? Some of them, or one of them may have said, "I, I just, I don't know if I can do that. That looks slippery, or how do we get up on top? Let alone them saying, no, 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 we need to get up on top. But the only reason we're going to get up on top is because we're going to drag our paralyzed friend up there as well. And then in the midst of Jesus' teaching, this ought to make him very happy, we're going to start to disassemble the roof. And then the plan is we lower you down on the ropes right in front of him. So desperation now has multiple meanings. Not only desperation like you see the condition of your need, oh, wow, I'm bad off. What do the kids say? Now, down bad or whatever? I Like, oh, I'm down bad, right? That's what they would say. They see that. Secondarily, they know the desperation of the case. There's nowhere else to turn. There's one Jesus. We got to get in. There's nowhere else to go. But now, third, there's a desperation in the sense that they have abandoned a kind of dignity. You see, how, what's the difference between someone wanting someone and something, someone who's desperate for something Well, some degree of dignity, probably. Can you imagine how embarrassing it would have been with all the people watching? It says that there were scribes and religious leaders there, respectable people watching. And then Jesus, who you hope actually helps your friend, he's the one being interrupted. We don't know exactly when Jesus noticed, but he notices He's teaching, he could have been in the, in the zone. And then at a certain point, he lifts up his eyes and notices the light coming in. And my guess is that at a certain point, the whole crowd just goes hushed to a silence. And a pallet drops in. I'm not sure exactly what it looked like, but you can imagine. Ropes down, paralyzed guy in the front. Stupid grins of friends up on the roof peering in. And what has been demonstrated here is an understanding of one's position and need such that this desperation leads to an active faith. What's so amazing here is the gentleness of Jesus. He doesn't say, um, excuse me, I'm in the middle of something here. He doesn't say, I was just about to seal the deal. You broke the emotional tension of the moment. No, he looks and he is amazed and he says, I saw their faith. What a phrase. Sometimes faith is, uh, is purely or only intellect, just a mental ascent only. And here the, the scripture combines over the top what living faith looks like. It became evident. He saw their faith. It was demonstrated. It was demonstrative. Sometimes your hunger is silent and other times you ravage. Our boys sometimes by the time a bottle got to them, they would not have had to tell us they were hungry. We saw their hunger. Like, a, like an animal grabbing the thing. These men, as well as the paralytic, had a desperation of soul that press them toward Jesus. And I believe that there is something there at the beginning of faith that must look like desperation so long as you're nonchalant about your need, so long as you think that your life is pretty much okay and normal, especially compared to other people. And if by chance you got a slight boost, so long as that's your attitude, then it would be difficult to get to Jesus. But not these men and not this paralytic. They demonstrated a dogged commitment to their need and a commitment to the power of Jesus to help them. And now this is where I think this is a living idea. What does it mean to see faith? Well, their faith is seen in this. Faith is the ongoing recognition of the need of one's soul. It's hard to be full of faith, especially to put your hope in something else, when you're full of self-confidence. When you think, "Ah, I can do it. I'm more or less okay. I'm kind of impressive. Other people wish they were me. As long as those kind of thoughts are digging around in the depth of your soul, it's unlikely for faith to erupt. Now, it's only when a desperation comes, when everything gets quiet and you've stopped the pretending, or you know for a fact that the things that you feel inside And the way that you live is not okay. You begin to say, Where can I find help? It is when a self satisfied, self reliant soul begins to die and shrivel amongst the real need of the world that faith now has an opportunity to bubble up. Religion or Christianity or Jesus, or forgiveness, or worshiping, or praying, will make no sense to a self-satisfied person. To those who don't know that they're lame, and I just mean uncool, some of us also know we're, we're that lame. If you do not know that you're lame, why would you ever go through the embarrassing trouble of digging through the rooftop and coming down in front of all of your friends. It feels absurd. And what turns absurdity, you did what? You were how desperate? What turns absurdity into action is a realization of your desperate need. And so that's being demonstrated here. That's behind the story. It's the color of the story. And now we turn where if we only felt desperation, it would be a sad story. But it's not the end of the story because their desperation leads them to the feet of Jesus. And we wait now in a moment of quiet to say, well, how is he going to respond? And Jesus responds quite surprisingly. He meets this desperation with a few declarations. Jesus, he asserts his authority by simply stating some things. I want you to note he meets this man's paralyzed state with a gospelized, a kind of good news encouragement that your sins are forgiven. One of the things about Jesus, his his gift of teaching is that he would often zag when you were supposed to zig and often zig when you were supposed to zag. So imagine the paralyzed guys in front and everybody's just waiting. Oh, I love this. I want him to strengthen the legs and straighten the back and make him walk. And instead, Jesus just says, take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Now, what we find is is that there were those opposed to Jesus in this place. And what happens when he makes this declaration that should have been received well is that many use it as ammunition against him. When Jesus goes home, He doesn't go to Nazareth. He goes to Capernaum, which had been his place of ministry, and what we find is he's not loved there. He doesn't flee the problem with the swine and the pigs dying to go home and be comfortable and say, well, now I can hide. In fact, we find out that he is a prophet without honor in his hometown. There are many who are opposed to him back in Capernaum. Amongst them, the scribes and Pharisees, the leaders of the day, And they were keeping track of all the ways that he sidestepped so that they could make a case for him to eventually be killed. The problems of Jesus start in his hometown, not in some foreign place somewhere. And so this declaration that Jesus makes of sins being forgiven is not received with joy, but we're told in verse 3, Matthew 9, that the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. I'm sure that they were in some ways happy that he had now outed himself in front of so many witnesses. There's a sense in which the scribes and Pharisees have been taking notes on all that he's done. And here in this moment, someone who would dare to say that they could forgive sins, which God alone can do, must have been a delight to them. They thought, yes, he's dug his own grave. Their their smugness would have come out inside of their hearts, not outwardly, but something like this. "Mm "Hmm." Just as we thought. And Jesus now turns and makes a second declaration. Knowing their thoughts, which is so funny. The Bible's full of things that we could just sit and think on for a couple thousand years. Jesus was mind-reading, which is amazing. He knows the way they thought and felt. And he turns and he says, why do you think evil in your hearts? Here's a definitive statement. It is an evil thing to attribute to God something evil when he is perfectly good. Jesus is without sin, They accuse him of idolatry and blasphemy, and so he turns to them and he says, why do you think evil in your hearts? And then he asks them what I believe is a kind of rhetorical question. I think it's rhetorical because he doesn't wait for an answer and just does something. He says to them, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? He says to them, which declaration do you want? Now, that seems like a simple statement, Right? And I admit in studying this and thinking about it that at a certain moment I thought, I don't even have to think about that. That's easy. It's so much easier to heal physical things, but forgiveness is so much deeper. But then for a second I thought to myself, no, wait, what does he mean? How are they supposed to answer? How are we supposed to answer? What is he trying to get at? It turns out that he knows from their perspective to say rise and walk is much harder. Why? Because anybody can say your sins are forgiven. And there's no outward evidence that anything took place. It'd be like some stranger saying, ah, our auras are aligned. I mean, what are you going to tell him? <laughs> no, mine's totally not. And I don't, I don't know. There's not, there's not outward evidence, right? Nothing can be seen. It's not visible. And I'm sure that when he says your sins are forgiven, here's what they think is there's no evidence of that. In fact, the evidence is that he's blaspheming. It's much more risky for someone in Jesus' position with a crowd rushed in and those who are committed to punishing those who would blaspheme. It's much more difficult in front of the whole crowd to say to someone, rise and walk. You've got all of the expectations of being a good teacher, all the reputation of being a healer, this amazing effort of some friends dropping a paralytic. He's right there in front. The crowd's all looking in. How absolutely embarrassing would it be for Jesus to say, rise and walk, and then the man can't move. So Jesus does what he often does in his life and ministry, and that is that he condescends. In order to give confidence to humanity, he gives them the lesser thing which they think is greater in order to give confidence that he can do the greater thing, which they think is lesser. And so he says to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And then matter-of-factly, verse 7, he rose and went home. Jesus was gracious. He knows that people wanted a show. They wanted him to use his power just for power's sake. But he would not let them misalign their priorities in such a way. Later, he's going to say to some, You're a wicked and evil generation. You always seek a sign. You don't trust that I've come to undo the greater difficulty. You have a desperation that you've never even mentioned, that you won't face. That is your sins. But instead, you want shows of power over and over again. And here, gracious as Jesus is, he gives them evidence. Rise and walk, he says, and now in front of everyone who witnesses, there is physical, demonstrated power for healing. So the man goes home, the crowd see it, they're afraid, they have a kind of reverent awe, and they glorify God, which is, of course, the mission of Jesus in this world, to glorify God in all that he does, because the forgiveness of sins has landed What takes place here is a demonstration, I believe, of what it looks like to be found in Jesus. Something happens in the soul of a person where they begin to see their need more clearly. They become desperate in a certain way. They find themselves in front of Jesus and they listen to what he says. Jesus doesn't have to work himself into a frenzy to make these things happen. He simply speaks and demonstrates his authority. And it's when the desperation for Jesus from a soul meets and receives the declarations of Jesus, His words, His promises, when these two things align together, life and healing and restoration takes place. If you try to short-circuit either one, you will not find what is most needed. If you cannot bear to admit that you are desperate and have need, then the declarations of Jesus will make no sense to you they will mean nothing if you are endlessly introspective and understand your need but never will listen or receive the words of jesus as he declares power over your life then you will not be healed you see this is a moment when in the story of matthew's gospel of jesus that things start to come together Don't you love when a good story comes together and everything just kind of wraps up? Have you ever read a, a book or watched a show and you just thought to yourself, wow, I'm getting it now? The author brings it into view. It's as though you couldn't see clearly before and then all of a sudden a lens is put in your eyes and everything just aligns. Matthew has been trying to tell us from the very beginning that the purpose of Jesus in coming was not merely to put on a demonstration of God's power but instead to leverage all that God is to forgive and save His people from their sins. Matthew chapter 1. In Matthew chapter 1, Joseph is visited by an angel. This is how the whole story gets put in motion. Why will Mary be with child? Why will she bear a son? What will His name be? Well, Matthew chapter 1 verse 21 says this. She will bear a son... You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's the beginning of Matthew. We've been reading along and studying it. Now fast forward 30 years. Why has Jesus taken on human flesh and enacted the miracle of the incarnation to save his people from their sins? Why has Jesus lived a righteous life that you and I could never live? tempted exactly as we are so that we have a high priest who knows our weaknesses. But why would he live a life like that perfectly just to prove that he can? No, he's come to live a perfect life to save his people from their sins. Why did Jesus die a sinner's death on a cross, executed as it were, a guilty death for an innocent man? Well, he died in such a way, not just to demonstrate... That he could suffer well, but to save his people from their sins. He came to absorb the wrath of God for sins in an atoning death because the whole purpose of his life is to leverage all of the Godhead to forgive his people from their sins. Why did Jesus go into the grave and wrestle and overcome death itself? And then in the presence of many witnesses, come into newness of life to save His people from their sins? Why did He ascend into heaven? And why is He seated at the right hand of the Father on high, given a name that is above every name, to save His people from their sins? Why is Jesus interceding for you and I right now on our behalf? To save people from their sins. Why did He give the disciples and the apostles sent out with authority from heaven and earth to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and to teach them to observe all that He commanded? To save people from their sins so that they would see their desperate need and find in the declarations of Jesus life. Now a few observations from this text. Jesus speaks directly with the scribes who were hard-hearted and proud. And he teaches them directly. But I want you to note the gentleness with the paralytic and the friends. He commends them. It is not a problem. We should not feel guilty that oftentimes the lesser things, our problems in life, are what press us toward Jesus. Many people find that at the difficulties of life, The fallenness of this world, illness, sickness, disunity with family or friends, sinning or being sinned against, are maybe the temporal things that drive us to Jesus. But we should be careful to not think too much of what God might do to heal those issues. When all the while, He says, I'm grateful that you've come, but you have deeper issues than that. And for those of us who have been driven to Christ in desperation, should feel a kind of joy and rejoicing when Jesus declares to us, your sins are forgiven. Do you believe this? Do you feel in the midst of guilt and shame and difficulty and desperation, do you feel that your greatest problems are temporal? Or do you know that your deepest and greatest problem has been done away with by the work Ministry, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Your salvation will be found in meeting your desperation of soul with trust in the pronouncements of Jesus that He has come to forgive and does forgive you. The good news of the gospel, the hope that we can offer to the world, is nothing but this you can be and are forgiven by the blood of Jesus. It's the only merit that you have, only merit I have, the only way we could possibly belong is that Jesus came with authority to forgive sins. It's why nothing else will do. If we're not desperate of soul and we won't listen to the declarations of Jesus, then religion doesn't make any sense except maybe a sort of lame social club. Why would you... Confess sins. Why humble yourself? Why love sacrificially? Why close your eyes and pray to an invisible being? Why give up your dignity and sing songs to someone you can't see? Those things will make no sense to someone who has not seen their desperate need met. By the gracious declaration of Jesus. More than that, not only will those things only make sense with him, but you'll find that your desperation grows greater when you realize there's nowhere else to turn. Why did they drop him down through the roof of this one building? Because there's only one Jesus. They can't my mom it. They can't be like, oh, this, this Savior's busy. You guys just want to go around the corner? There's nowhere else to turn. That's the lesson of faith in Matthew chapter 9. My prayer for us is that like the paralytic who did receive this wondrous miracle of being raised from his bed to stand up, though it's temporal, later when he dies he's laid back down, that he would come to see that his greatest need was met by Jesus, one that he perhaps didn't even see or hope to have met when brought to him. You know, the psalmist declares throughout Scripture at different times, Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Maybe I'd put that into my own words. This is the LRV, the Lance Revised Version. Maybe I would say something like this, Lord, keep me from rejoicing in or wanting other things for you and making too little of the fact that my sins are forgiven. May we never be a church that yawns at the forgiveness of our sins and the reconciling of our souls to our maker. There's a sense in no matter that no matter what else happens in our church, we should be moved by, and every once in a while just look at one another and be like, can you believe a sinner like me is forgiven? This is nonsense. Restore the joy and the scandal of grace and mercy that forgives people like us. That's, that's my prayer. It's my prayer for you. That you would listen to the words of Jesus as He says over you, forgiven. Let's pray.